world. Welcome back to Working Wisely. I'm Jesse Van Maurick, and today we are talking to Faria Mohudin. Faria works at Tax Justice Network as a policy advocate and a researcher. Tax Justice Network is an NGO that specializes in rooting out tax havens and advocating for political institutions that fight against them, as well as other political institutions that guarantee human rights for countless millions around the globe. Um, they also recently produced a very compelling documentary, The Spider's Web, Britain's Second Empire, which you can see on YouTube. Faria is someone who has a strong sense of purpose, something a lot of people are currently seeking in their own careers. She knows what she believes in, she acts on it, and she has a lot of information to back up her, her worldview, um, something that is admirable in whatever you're doing. So for those who are seeking a little insight on how to have a more purposeful career, or to, in some cases, find purpose that might not necessarily be in your job, this will be the interview for you. So without further ado, here's Faria. All right, Faria, how's it going? It's going really well. Good, good. Let's just get into it. The Tax Justice Network, what is it? Why should we care? What's important about it? How are you related to it? <laughs> wow, that's a lot of questions first thing. I know, it's early. Um, I'm, you know what, I'm going to uh, use a party trick and just read uh, from our website. So, Do it. The Tax Justice Network is an independent international network launched in 2003 is dedicated to high-level research, analysis, and advocacy in the area of international tax and financial regulation, including the role of tax havens. Actually, it's mostly the role of tax havens. Okay. So and uh, as for what I do for them, I have this lovely title, Strategic Programs Researcher, which covers many, many aspects. But I mostly work on their tax justice and human rights program. Okay, so that's very umbrella-esque of a, of a job description, which is great for the NGO space, because Tax Justice Network is an NGO. And I understand you guys also produced the documentary The Spider's Web, correct? Yes, we did. I that. love that documentary, both in its style and its message. Um, can you give a summary, essentially, of what that is on? Um, a Spider's Web basically looks into the UK's network of affiliated tax havens, so to speak. So the UK itself may not be classed as a tax haven, but it does control all the big tax havens. So the British Virgin Islands, Cayman Islands, um, Jersey, Isle of Man, and the Spider's Web basically tracks um, the historical rise of such of an arrangement of this you know, spider's web of tax havens across the world. Um, and, you know, how that functions now in global finance and how it essentially hurts the world. Yeah, what I enjoyed about the documentary, though slightly dark subject, you know, <laughs> not saying NGOs have to talk about happy stuff, but, you know, one thing I did enjoy about it was also how it very much linked those origins to colonial times, right? And I think a lot of your work is also related on sort of unkinking old financial pipelines that were set up at a time to sort of extract funds and resources from... Uh, less developed parts of the world, right? And I think one thing that's compelling about that documentary, not just the fact that it's well-made and it's on YouTube and you guys can see it by typing in The Spider's Web. It's also available in French. It's also available in French, it's, which is probably relevant if it's about tax havens and <laughs> extracting resources from developing countries. Um, but what's nice about it on that front is also the fact that there is a coherent message about how one set of institutions can sort of get inertia and then have other institutions be layered on top. And then we have a norm, which we think is kind of a bunch of smart people in a skyscraper, which when it enters our heads, finance, but then it's 
It's really kind of a layering of different economic, political, and financial interests over a long, long period of time. And even after the original sort of power structures that set up the first layer of financial institutions is gone, the institutions then change much more slowly. There's kind of a calcification. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. I mean, currently right now, the big debate or the big kind of fight at the global level around taxation is around what we call global taxing rights. Because the way we tax internationally, um, you know, the structures that are set up so that corporations can profit ship, for example, into tax havens, were rules that were set up by the League of Nations in the 1920s, you know, and it's woefully, um, as we say, not fit for task anymore. But, you know, these interests are so entrenched towards rich countries that now, you know, lower income countries are trying to get in the game to say, no, it's actually deeply unfair and we need to have a say. And, you know, the currently the arena in which these conversations happen are the OECD, a.k.a. the Developed Countries Club. And there's a movement to try and shift it towards the United Nations, which, despite its flaws, you know, is actually the global governance arena in which you, where, you know, every country has one vote, one voice kind of thing yeah. going for it. So, you know, you're absolutely right. And that is where the debate right now and the heat um, is, is gathering around these issues. Okay. And then for people listening who don't know, the OECD was originally set up in the late 40s as sort of an institution of the American Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe after uh, World War II had its sort of bloody end, as most wars do. Um, and essentially, it then became something larger than just financial development for Europe, but also a means of economically developing other parts of the world. One of the first members to join after uh, European countries was Turkey, I believe. Um, maybe I'm wrong about that. It might be South Korea, actually. It might actually be South Korea, but Organiz Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, or for those that don't know. And so the reason I tied into that is because, okay, so for example, this is a podcast for a startup, sort of the, sort of the poster child for kind of new thinking, new institutions, but also very much uh, a, a capitalistic uh, construct, right? We talk about these sort of things. It's all right. But what I want to know is how does someone like you in their day-to-day -day career um, sort of reconcile, let's play devil's advocate for a second. Okay, tax havens are bad. Finance has clear old roots that are not helping in the way that they claim to help uh, people build wealth, right? And then, um, yet, there's also a lot of innovative, clever, talented, wonderful people who are uh, trying things out and are reliant on investor capital, right? Like, just simply put. So, like, um, and there's, I mean, there's a million examples of that, but how do you personally view finance as both a good thing and a bad thing? You know, I'm not going to argue that, you know, innovation, finance, investment, these aren't like good things they are it's to what extent they um happen right you know the the, the our favorite phrase is unfettered capitalism right so when it's unfettered when it's not put into a system of checks and balances or regulation that's when you run into trouble um what we have currently is that the state is not strong enough to rein in um basically what happens when you let capitalism go amok which is you have oligarchy, which is, you know, you, part just, you particularly see it in the States where there's 
very few large interests controlling massive amounts of industries, whether it's in tech or whether it's like, you know, the Coke industry, the Coke brothers, right, have are very large and, and control, you know, a multiplicity of arenas in which people are doing these kinds of things, right? And so, you know, if you say, yeah, innovation and finance and all of these things are good, but under what conditions, it's not these conditions. And that's what we're fighting back against. It's a concentration of power and wealth that leads to the perversion of good kinds of finance, good kinds of innovation to allow people to solve problems. Which I think is a really important point because I think what often happens when you do speak to people who do political activism as you do, who are related to NGOs who do a lot of things in a lot of different parts of the world, if you're if you're making sort of the, like the the cheap argument against um, any kind of sort of global welfare or civic welfare, that's kind of normally the first go to. Like, oh, so Faria, you hate innovation. Why do you want people in the developing world to stay poor? Amazon's doing great. You know, I mean, what about those hundreds of millions of people who've been lifted out of poverty because um, I don't know something Milton Freeman maybe did, probably not. Like, how do you, how do you in your, in your work as a researcher, one, kind of absorb the, the shock of, okay, obviously the various financial institutions around the world must evolve and grow and change to fit, fit different economic, political, and social needs over time with the kind of general, yeah, financial incentives that financial institutions impose on, on, uh, people around the world. So, I mean, there's a few parts to what you said. One is this idea about, like, innovation and who does it. Right. I think there's a myth that we've been told that uh, innovation arises out of garages in the, you know, Bay Area. But <laughs> um, a lot of innovation, actually, the way it's done is through government investment and R&D in universities, in their own institutions, which then spread into broader society. Like, a lot of the fundamental technology that powers an iPhone started out in the U.S. military and their military applications. It's, that's government funding, you know, and people don't think about it that way, which then, you know, gets um, released into gen pop, if you will, which then gets used for other things. Gen pop, what's gen pop? General population. General so population. It's, it's a prison term, which... <laughs> it's a prison term? <laughs> it's a prison term. Where do you work again? <laughs> the town with the carceral state. Okay. No, um, you know, a lot of innovation is funded through government, you know, and what you see when it comes to the startup ecosystem is actually a third order effect of that government investment. So, you know, to say that innovation happens because government stays out and people are just smart, how do people get to be smart in the first place, right? It's because they're supported through um, infrastructure, whether it's educational or community or what have you, and they have the resources. So, I mean, that's one bit that I'm like, oh, let's actually question where innovation happens and how it happens. Um, but on the whole narrative of, well, you know, if the current system is so bad, how do you explain, you know, millions and millions of people being lifted out of poverty, um, you know, over the last 30 years? But if you look at where that happens, you get a more interesting picture. So one is, okay, let's talk about the absolute poverty picture. People are saying, right, over the last 30 years, number of people in absolute poverty have fallen. Where where has that fall happened? It's happened in China and the um, Asian tigers. How has that happened? Well, state policy, industrial policy. Institutions. Institutions, right? It's not because capitalism came there and like just did their thing. No, th that was actually very much regulated and controlled by the government. Now, you can have differing opinions about that, but those happen to be the facts. 
you know, alternative or not, if you want, depending on your ideology. But the other issue that we need to talk about is relative inequality and relative poverty. And this is where my work gets into it, right? Okay. Tax is what we use as a society to ensure that we have less relative inequality, right? Or mm -hmm. relative equality, right? Those who have more pay more, right? And that is where you see a lot of like the political discourse now. Yes, people in absolute poverty have fallen, has fallen, but relative inequality, relative poverty has increased, has skyrocketed. Yeah. So, for example, you've seen kind of a, a, a lower middle class in the developed world kind of falter, and then an, an upper, upper, upper class sort of skyrocket into the stratosphere. I'm, and then I think it's a good point that you made on the uh, kind of garage innovation uh, metaphor, which is to say, yeah, I mean, many people, especially when they think about advanced technology now, they think of it sort of starting in Stanford somewhere with some kind of hippie dudes that, uh, you know, had some sort of aha moment and then and, and just got to work when, you know, it's not as popular to discuss kind of underpaid MIT grads in the 1950s freaking out about Sputnik and just kind of chain smoking with bad coffee in a basement trying to make lasers and 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 other fundamental technologies that then get kind of made smaller, more sleek, and more efficient. And then... Uh, and paid for. And paid by for. the American taxpayer through army funding, through other kinds of funding. So maybe you don't know, but I would just be curious, what percentage of... If, if we look at like like the kind of big tech companies like Netflix or something or Facebook or, or Amazon or... I mean, I think I don't have to name them for everybody, but like... How much technology do they themselves generate versus circulate, compartmentalize, and, and smoothen out, so to speak? I would say the vast majority. I mean, yeah, there's some, you know, there is innovation in putting things together in a specific way, like using the building blocks that are out there. But, I mean, to say that they, like, invented something, I think that is a very dicey uh definition but i mean i think that's a very interesting point right like i think there, that to me that it assumes there's kind of two sorts of innovation right there's the uh there's the sort of scaling and and selling innovation and then there's kind of the often financially uh difficult work of just kind of grinding something out for a long time right i mean there was a there used to be this hokey tv show um on in the united states called tactical to practical i don't know if you recall it no, I've never seen it. I definitely want to watch it now. Delightful, delightful uh, product of the History Channel. But what they would always do is they would take something like an airplane and then they would, you know, look at all the things about it and, and the sort of military need it had and then how it got a, it adapted into the general population later. And maybe they should have gone to say it wasn't just military hardware that did that, but... But they would, you know, they'd like look at World War One and go, oh, we made planes to win. And look, then they used the planes as crop dusters. And that's why, in it, and, you know... An Independence Day, the guy in the the guy who's doing the crop dusting, who then eventually stops the alien hordes, is first, you know, doing yeah. pesticide work. I get, I, I'm, I digress. But what, what, what I think is valuable about what you're saying, first and foremost, is that the fundamental basis for which commerce and startupy innovation can happen depends on um, sort of reliable framework of institutions, right? English common law or Singaporean Asian tiger uh, regulation of a financial market or or uh, in some cases um, just the fundamental human rights of a person to know that they can start some sort of business, know that it won't be sort of taken from them by a, by a random mafia and then 
when they hire someone, the person who they're hiring knows that they get a certain compensation that won't change or go away overnight, right? I mean... Yeah, I mean, I'd say it's a bit more, even more basic than that. I mean, you've covered the bit about, like, the fact that this can happen in a framework of laws. It, it costs money to, one, legislate and then enforce these laws, right? That's one bit. But here's the thing. If you are, if you have a company in this, in this current global economy, right? That means when you're extracting value from it, it, you know, to do that, you need what? You need um, office space in a city, right, often, or you need office space that is connected to some sort of infrastructure. You need workers. What are those workers like? They're likely to be well-educated. They're likely to be healthy. And if they can get to work on time, all of these are a function of, at some level, government investment. Yeah, but right? Ubon doesn't work in Berlin. Yeah. It's kind of, I mean, it's not entirely on the government, but like it, it causes trouble for, for companies, or right? Or people who bike on bike lanes or are safe on roads that are built for that kind of traffic. All of these things started as government investment, right? Which are then funded by taxpayers. So, you know, to say people are kind of producing value from thin air from their own minds and their own innovation, I think is disingenuous. And that's what I kind of find upsetting or offensive about some of the narrative around tech startups and innovation. It's like, no, there were a lot of other fundamental things that allowed you to create an environment for this kind of innovation. Yeah. That's, that's one of our, our things at, 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 uh, WorkStreams. Our last guy on wrote a book called Why Your Startup is Failing. Um, his name's Henry Latham. Go listen to that too when you're done. But one of his key points was, was essentially that, that, you know, things don't just show up out of thin air and you can also spend a lot of time working on something that makes no impact whatsoever and have the feeling like you are just achieving and inspiring so much. And one of the challenges that any company has is, or any employee really has is, is not just recognizing a sense of purpose, but then like, how do I bring that into reality? Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in a way you're kind of an example of when that works out, right? I'm not saying that the tax system's totally fixed yet or that you're responsible for doing that yourself, but I mean, you are effectively working at an institution that has done some pretty impressive things, um, on top of making some great documentaries around taxation, tax havens. And as you've already explained, that's under the fundamental assumption that Wealth, well-being, quality of life for human beings is important. Let's hopefully all agree on that. Second, that that depends on a framework of political institutions that create the right economic incentives. And third, if you're going to have those institutions work, you have to fund them, right? Yeah, you have to fund them and then um, agree that those institutions are important. I mean, those are two connected ideas. How does your, how does, when Faria gets up in the morning, how does, how does a day look with all of that information in her head, all that macro stressed out stuff about the state of global finance and the, and the underregarded institutions? How does, how do, how do you take the, the sort of things that you've researched and then put them to practical use at your NGO? Well, I mean, with my work in particular. So yeah, what, what do I do when I get up in the morning? My job, um, has, three broad functions, or it's not in my job description, but this is what I've ended up doing. Um, one of the things that I do produce research, and the key thing that I'm looking at is how tax justice and human rights are connected. So um, it may not be obvious to a lot of people, but in order for you to have a right, there needs to be money to fund it. 
So when we broadly think of human rights and what it means to have one, we're often thinking about, is it in the law? Is it in domestic legislation that I have a right to health, I have a right to education? What's less um, out there as an idea is that in order to have it, you need to fund it. It needs and it needs to come from taxation. So, you know, I might have the right to health enshrined in a constitution, but if I can't access a hospital or once I get to that hospital, I don't have some level of basic coverage, then according to the International Covenant, you don't actually have your right to health be fulfilled. Got it. Yeah. So for a quick example, or if this is an appropriate example, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think one example of like institutions having teeth might be kind of the way um, different companies get treated in different blocks. Like I think, for example, um, the EU will just sometimes be like, hey, Google, you have 95% of the market share. Give us $5 billion. And then Google gives them $5 billion. And then, you know, a couple of years later, they ask for something again. (laughs) But I mean... that's is, is that an example or is that a trite, silly news headline I've picked up? I think it's a bit of the latter. I mean, for, Fair enough. for, for us, it's really about the more fundamental argument that how do you, how do you um, ensure there's rights provision in society? How do you go about that? I mean, I think first and foremost, you'd probably have to figure out how it's currently being enforced. And then you'd have to see what resources should be added or taken away. And how much of that is public? How much of that is private? How much of it is uh, institutions like yours? Yeah, I mean, it it really is a fundamental argument. Like, if we have agreed, which we have, essentially, I mean, it can it's probably eroding in certain places, that we as humans have basic rights. You know, what are they? Other than the, you know, right to live, is health, education, food, housing. These are really your fundamental rights. And... In the in international law, we say the state is the duty bearer, right? They are the people responsible for making sure you have those rights. And then to say, right, how are they doing that? And we often stop short of saying, is it in the law? If it's in the law, great, check mark. We are taking it a step further to say, no, do they actually exist and are they being funded? Okay. So And, and so it's just about like making that more of a robust intellectual argument to say, not only should they be funded, they should be funded by taxpayer money and that there is a benefit to that. Um, so that's my, that's my research focus. Okay. So for maybe for like a more robust example than my previous one. So let's be a little more abstract. So in the mm-hmm. case of maybe, maybe you pass a law for pollution in California, but then, um, the institution which is burdened with enforcing that law is essentially not well funded, hypothetically. Um, you're looking to make sure once the law is made, is there really, are there really the resources in place to make sure what we're saying matters is, is, is happening? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and then in, this is particularly salient in developing countries, right? Because they, they will often have the right to health or right to housing or whatever enshrined in their laws, but then they will go around and say like, well, we don't have the money, right? And that's where, you know, the aid comp, like aid industrial complex comes in. Tom's. Tom's uh, right to shoes. Um, but we say the fundamental problem beyond them being poor is how are they poor, right? If you're looking at a country like Malawi, which is often named as one of the poorest countries in the world, Malawi has actually a lot of mining activity, right? 
And so that mining activity, where do the profits for that mine go, right? Are those profits taxed in Malawi? I'm going to say probably not. If it's in Africa, it's probably uh, shifted to Mauritius, right, which is a tax haven. And then through Mauritius, through a shell company there, taken to wherever the profits are then moved to wherever the home country is. So we're making the argument that if that mining is happening in Malawi, the profit should be taxed in Malawi, and that tax revenue should go into government programs that fund health, healthcare, education, housing. Yeah, it's a solid argument. So in, in my in my dubious bits of reading about the development of Africa, which is probably not as thorough as your own, one thing I came across was the fact that, for example, you get um, also kind of a Oddly, sometimes the wealth, when, when not appropriated properly, can also have the, the reverse effect. More wealth can often make things worse for people. I was looking at, um, no offense to anybody from Djibouti, but they've collected a lot of money from various countries that are building military bases there because the Horn of Africa, this area near approaching the Persian Gulf, has a lot of shipping, connects with the Suez Canal, has a lot of oil moving through it. So they've collected a lot of money, essentially, the government has to, uh, yeah, basically have they they collect rent for military bases but then they don't use that to build like schools and hospitals and kindergartens they 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 use it as a reinforcing mechanism of 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 the of the state which is not democratic and then um a small number of people sort of extract the wealth and then do with it what they will so is that a microcosm for sort of what you are trying to disrupt so to speak is is um especially in the developing world the case where you have i guess what the book why nations fail would call an extractive political institution you're trying to make it more inclusive yeah i mean so taking your Djibouti example there's a few things here so we have um in my work what we call the four r's of tax justice what are the four r's I'm going to get into it. Uh, so one is revenue. Like So the first thing is saying, like right, the fact that they are extracting revenue, or in, in the Malawi case, that they are able to get the revenue from the mining. The next thing is redistribution, right? which is, of course, redistributing that revenue towards things like health, education, housing. What you're talking about is representation, right? As an American, no taxation without representation is, you know, the famous starting gun, the starting slogan, if you will. I recall such a phrase in history class. (laughs) But it is a fundamental aspect of what we're talking about. Right, you're absolutely right. There's one thing to have revenue, but if the redistribution is wrong, how do you fight that? And that's the representation angle. Now, you know, not my work per se, but we do work with a lot of um, organizations and coalitions across the world to strengthen that representation piece, to say, here's a piece of policy advocacy resource to say, if you get tax revenue and you put it to education, here's the outcome. And to help people produce campaign materials and mass mobilization campaigns to to get that representation angle, to say, hey, you've got this money, government, here's a piece of resource to say how you should spend it, why aren't you spending it that way, right? So that's the that's the representation angle. The, the fourth R is a bit more technical. It's repricing. So this is more like carbon taxes, sugar taxes, alcohol, alcohol taxes to reprice behavior away from what we would call social ills and often use that money to fund social programs like, um, tobacco education campaigns or 
to support like healthy eating programs for low-income families, this kind of thing. But that, so that's one part. That's the representation part in your GPB example. The other thing is like, yes, okay, if it find it accrues to a certain portion of that society who then have the ability to take that money offshore and put it in a Swiss bank account, that's also a hole we're trying to plug to say, we don't want that to happen. We need to make sure that people can't take money out of a country and just hide it without that very distinct paper trail. Okay, so for example, let's use uh, let's use an example from Spider's Web. Let's say I am a dictator in developing country X, mm-hmm. and I basically have relations with my formal or formal former colonial uh, aggressors, mm-hmm. and uh, they have a company that has a disproportionate stake in like a nickel mine somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I'm, I might be a fantastic human, but I am in an institutional situation where to maintain power under the conditions I, I acquired it, I need to extract loads of money to fund my army that's being challenged by warlords and different factions of different languages, religions, and all that. This is sort of my devil's advocate point. Um, and, and I'm just trying to keep the, the ball rolling, and these tax havens are helping me hide my money so I can... I can stay in power and maybe make some changes later on. So have you ever heard that argument? I have heard that argument, but I mean, you're taking as your fundamental premise that this guy deserves to stay in power. I'm, uh, this might be my own personal leaning, but I think that. Well, as a fictional dictator of a developing country, I am trying to stay in power. Yes. Uh, but I'm just saying that like, why, why should you stay in power? Like, why is this not something that gets resolved? I mean, yeah, it could be bloody conflict, but in the sense that, you know, it is not our job to keep the peace in your country if it's at the cost of this massive extraction of wealth. Yeah, fair enough. So, I mean, let's, let's take it a little further. Thanks for bearing with me because I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying hard to defend the, the, the dictator yeah. of the developing country argument. Um, but let's, let's take it in a more broader kind of fatalist, fatalistic Western person in the 21st century. You know, Faria, that stuff all sounds great, but that's not how the real world works. The real world is an unfair place and we're not going to be able to change it that much. And the best thing you can do is focus on yourself and work out your own problems. And if everybody just did that, um, you know, we'd all be better off. And the places that aren't doing that well, maybe they've had some rough times with geography and history, but ultimately, They've just got to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and just and just figure it out because no one else is going to come to rescue them. Not you, not the government, nobody. Like, what would you? What do you say when you are approached with that argument? I would say that's incredibly pessimistic, and I have a lot of cause for optimism. But so. it's pop. It's a popular argument, though. Why do you think it's popular? I think it's popular because there are vested interests in making that narrative popular. That don't do anything because it can't be changed. You know, it's the argument that capitalism is the best way, it's the only way, because look at what we've got. Unfettered capitalism? Unfettered capitalism. But, you know, capitalism as a system has only existed for a short period of time in human society. Yes, there's been great advances, but I mean, to say that it's the only world imaginable, I think, really is a disservice to the power of human imagination, and from which optimism itself stems. So, but, you know, coming down to the more... um, 
granular level. When Tax Justice Network started in 2003, we were we advocated for three things. The ABCs of tax justice. We love our four R's, ABCs. So automatic exchange <laughs> of information, beneficial ownership registry. So, you know, uh, who owns trust foundations, shell companies in places where there's banking secrecy around who owns these things and country by country reporting so that large multi- multinationals have to uh, report their activities in each country in which they work. So when we... When we started, when Tax Justice Network started in 2003, people were like, get out of here, utopian nonsense, all this stuff. But within 10 years, these are on the agenda. So the OECD has started automatic exchange of information as of two years ago. Okay. Country by country reporting as well. And we are getting very, very close to like public registries of beneficial ownership. Um, I think uh, the UK already enacted legislation, and then more importantly, its crown dependencies in overseas territories will start in 2023. Okay, wow. So, so here's a good question then. So, how much? How much currently? I mean, maybe it's not possible to know, but like, how much? How much money that legally, theoretically, should be taxed? No new laws, no no new legislation. Globally, is not ending up in certain institutions because they're in a tax haven or they're, they're, it's hidden some other way? So there's two numbers that are part of this. So one is how much is lost annually to corporate tax evasion and avoidance. So that is corporate profit shifting. And uh, that number is about $500 billion U.S. dollars. And then there's the other aspect of how much wealth, so just like static wealth. Like private wealth. Private wealth, corporate wealth, what have you is being stored in tax havens. Now, the conservative estimate is about $1.3 trillion. The high-end estimate is $7 trillion. And how are those estimates calculated? I mean, it's a bit its a bit of like what information is out there, what you can track through paper trails. I mean, you know, part of the thing is like, you know, a lot of how all this wealth is held is things like gold bullion and art. So it's it's a little bit of. Uh, Are you saying that Pablo Picasso's paintings aren't really worth a hundred million dollars, and that it's a it's an elaborate collection mechanism? Probably not. There's actually a great New York Times article about the art world and money laundering. Well, I mean, if there's one thing I know that from reading a few things about, um, let's just call them um, exiled billionaires from country X, um, is that you know you can. Uh, uh, a, a dictatorship can repossess your your land in that country. It can shut down your bank account in that country, but it can't take your Rothko. It can't take your uh, apartment in Vancouver you're not using. It can't um, it can't repossess um, you know physical items you bought somewhere else. Yeah, I mean I, I, that's that's exactly why um, we want the beneficial ownership registries to say. You know, if there is a trust in the Cayman Islands that appears to be buying art, buying gold, we want to know who owns it. And when we say beneficial owner, we don't mean like, oh, you know, say company X or sorry, X Foundation in Cayman Islands is owned by company X out of Mauritius. We want to know who is getting the proceeds from that company. Okay. So, I mean... In a roundabout sort of way, I mean, it seems like even though you are officially a researcher, it sounds like the issue in many of these cases is not, in fact, 
um, ignorance about what can be done to create wealth for individuals in different parts of the world or what can be done to uh, improve the lot of maybe a certain social class in a developed country. It's often, I think, from your research, all pointing in a pretty similar direction. And therefore, a lot of what you guys must do as an institution, especially one that has political um, goals, is advocacy, networking, building coalitions with different people in different places, and, and really just being on kind of a, like a very much like a policy circuit, right? It's not really about, um, let's go find out what works. It's like, let's, let's find out how what currently works in some places can be applied to other places. Is that fair? Yes and no. Most of that is a yes, in the sense that like our big output is policy research to say, you know, we were we were the first people to say, we think this is how much is out there. This is how much is being lost. And then cultivating a research, um, I guess, ecosystem that was able to then drill down on that. Um, we produce the Financial Secrecy Index, which ranks how secretive jurisdictions are around the world. And... Uh, how much damage they're doing. So, for example, you could say the most secretive jurisdiction in the world is Vanuatu because you can't find any information on who holds bank accounts there. But that's not a useful measure. Our index then combines how much of global wealth is flowing to this jurisdiction. So, number one is the Cayman Islands. Number two is the U.S. Number three is Switzerland. So, you know, it comes it comes down like that. Um, we also do. I mean, okay. Let me let me rephrase. We have four work streams, right? You have four work streams. Work streams. This startup is called Work Streams. <laughs> um, the first one is the scale of injustice to say how much is being lost, right? So that's where that five hundred billion U.S. dollars annually comes from, right? The second is financial secrecy. So where is it going? Right? Okay. Where is it being hidden? The third is the race to the bottom. So. Why or how is it being lost, right? Through this, you know, domino effect, this cascading of low tax rates around the world, right? And how does that hurt the world and the world economy and growth and all those things? And the fourth is my program, the Tax Justice and Human Rights Program, say, what is the impact of all of this? Truly, what is the impact of all of this on people's well-being and, uh, and, okay. their, and their ability to access their rights? Okay, yeah, that is that is several prongs there, but they all lead to yeah, basically the same idea. It's like ultimately quality of life for people around the globe, and as that is measured in different ways, so financial, social, political, what have you. So then I'm going to pivot a little bit and say, all right, that is fascinating. Um, why why are you motivated to to work on this um, in particular? Like, I mean, you you studied finance, correct? Or you have, you studied? So I have two degrees in international relations, both a bachelor's and a master's. But a lot of your research now is related to also the financial. Yeah, I've I've ended up in, in taxation. So. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. As a fellow international relations major, I I, I applaud you because there's a lot lot going on in international relations. Um, but I, I, I'd like to ask then, um, what, what led you to do, not, not necessarily work where you're currently working, but do what you are doing there? Um, I would say what really motivates me is knowing how lucky I got. So let me, uh, elaborate. 
Um, I'm Canadian. You can probably tell from my accent that I'm North American of some some flavor. Just a boot. Just a boot. <laughs> Just a little. Um, and but my family is originally from Bangladesh, and I grew up in Dubai. I grew up having a very very nice life, but. Um, maybe thanks to my parents, I had a very strong feeling from a very young age that I got very lucky to be born in the family that I'm in. Now, you know, you're kind of curious. It's like, okay, you know, why is it that my family coming from Bangladesh, a nation founded in 1971, living in the United Arab Emirates, a nation also founded in 1971, are so different? Right. What makes these countries so fundamentally different? Why is it that in one I have such a high quality of life and in the other, if I'd stayed, if my family had stayed, my quality of life wouldn't be as good? And this really led me on a journey towards studying international relations and then more broadly developing country policy. And one of the things is institutions. And one of the fundamental institutions we have is, you know, both in a legal, philosophical, political, and fiscal way, is the institution of taxation to say, I want to give you money to make sure that my life is good. And I believe that you are, you as a state are the legitimate authority for that. And I trust that you will be able to do that. Okay. Yeah. That is a powerful answer. I, no, no refutation of that. <laughs> as, I mean, as as a white dude from North America, I share the the feeling of being uniquely lucky and uh, and at least attempting to uh, to give something back worthwhile. Uh, of course, while maybe perhaps slightly selfishly trying to maintain a, a standard of living that most people do not currently have. So there's there's you know there's that. Um, when you do all that, I mean, one thing we talk about um, on working wisely a lot is is the sense of a work life balance and how it's not at odds with doing well in your career. So this this might be something I, I'd be interested in getting your opinion on because, as you've pointed out, there are some there are some you know misconstrued things about how finance works. Um, I would argue there's also some misconstrued things about how careers and jobs work. And the things that work to our advantage are not always the things we're told work to our advantage. So, I mean, and I think I especially want to hit on the idea of, um, you know, this sort of grinded out, um, more work equals more success. Um, I guess working hard versus working smart. How do you, how do you work smart and, and not necessarily avoid working hard, but avoid unnecessary work that is not making an impact? Uh, you know, I think one of the first things to refute is that you're only worth as much as the economic value that you produce. That's this working hard all the time. You know, the, the glory of a 20 hour day comes from this idea that if I'm working, I'm worth more. Like if I work like that, I'm producing more value without actually thinking about how much can, like, how are you taking care of yourself? Because that is your worth in this world. So I think that like being a well-rounded, you know, mentally, physically, emotionally healthy person is how you produce value in this world. And, you know, taking the time to rest, taking the time to reflect, these are all very important parts of, you know, as you say, working wisely. Um, I, I think this whole narrative we have around, like, if you're not going I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say this, balls to the walls all the time. You can say balls to the walls. You can okay. say shit or fuck. It's, it's, we don't yeah. care. 
So yeah, if you're not going balls to the walls, you are not doing enough. You are not worthy. Uh, and I think that's a very dangerous narrative that particularly our generation has taken on. And, you know, if you're going to do well, I think you really need to safeguard yourself. And I don't mean like, you know, call into work and say, I need to take a half day to get a manicure. What I'm saying is knowing that after maybe like a 10 hour day, you're really not going to produce more value. Arguably, you're not going to produce more value about after seven or eight hours, but to know that is a hard stop about yourself. Yeah, they say even for people who work um, long days, the overwhelming majority of their productivity happens in like a three to four hour spurt, which I think most people can relate to. I mean, especially I think when people do knowledge work, you know, I mean, this is one thing we hit on a lot, but the idea that if you're a knowledge worker, you know, you're, you're kind of working towards a perspective, not necessarily a unit of output. You're not uh, stacking bricks or putting uh, doors on cars or... Uh, or something like that. Not that those things don't have value, but that if your if your job is to make a good decision, you, you it's 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 a bit bizarre to measure that in terms of like how many hours it took you. You know, the right decision could take a a week of contemplation, or it could or it could you know it could arrive at a second based on a discussion you had. Right. I think that's a very interesting point that you made, like the difference between being a knowledge worker versus being a physical worker. I think it's why knowledge workers undervalue rest because we don't feel like, oh, I've just spent eight hours stacking bricks. So why do I need to rest? Yeah. And, and I think that's why we also lead to a culture of undervaluing rest. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, if you're working towards a perspective, you know, uh, how much, how long does that take? Like it might take two hours. It might take, you know, a bunch of hours over a lot of days, but it doesn't mean it has to happen all at once. It's, it's, I think it's quite, toxic and I think it leads to um I would say a poverty uh in political and civic participation as well. Because you you you've expended so much uh mental energy um in one space that you don't you just don't have have it for another. Yeah, I mean not to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but uh, <laughs> Ooh, first mention of conspiracy theorist on the podcast, episode three, guys. Put on your tinfoil hats. <laughs> yes, put them on. Strap in. It's it's that you know the powers that be want to want you to subscribe to this narrative that you should be working all the time. If you don't work all the time, you're shit. But if you aren't working all the time, if you have the time to invest in political thinking, in being involved in civic issues. You can then have the time and the space, the mental space, to start fighting back against a society that has concentrated wealth in the hands of the powerful few. Do you think when you're doing your work that you are fighting against a, a fundamentally corrupt society? Or do you feel like you are making incremental uh, improvements to, to something that was always going to be flawed and is constantly changing and always needs to be kind of worked on and over, overseen by somebody? So if I understand this, the second bit, you're saying that we started out with a perfect society and or like we don't have a perfect society and always needs to be kept in check, check and balance. You know what? I think I did a bad job of phrasing the question then. I would say, do you, do you see the sort of civic or economic world as this sort of external thing that, that, is, that is headed in a bad direction that must be resisted? Or do you see the flaws in the current... Uh, kind of geoeconomic landscape that you're working to improve as sort of inherent in its incentives and your job is to help align those incentives to help more people. 
So I guess is is are you working against a, a world that just through pure gravity is unfair, or or are are things out of place and can be put together like a puzzle to be better? Like it's the it's I'm working in a world where political incentives created what we see today, and so my job is to fight back against that to say the poverty that we see in the world is a choice that was made because poverty is a political choice, right? My work is to say, one is to say that that is the case. Here is how it is the case, and here's how you can fight back. Because we do not need to be poor. There's enough wealth in the world that we do not need to be poor. And that is a moral failing of this world. Okay. Why is poverty a choice? Why, who would choose to be poor? It's no, a political choice. It's so a, does a, that mean a, a political institution just decides to keep people impoverished? Yes, that there are political forces at play that keep other people poor, not that someone would choose to be poor. Just want to be super clear. Absolutely. (laughs) Poverty is a choice. Poverty is a choice. You choose to be poor. Just pull yourselves up. No, I mean to say that, that's why I said poverty in society, that there are political choices being made that keep other people poor. The greatest example of this you'll see is austerity Britain. Britain is the fifth richest society in the world. However, Large swaths of its of its uh, population, up to twenty percent, live in poverty. Why? It's a great question. Is it a yeah. social class question? It's Is it absolutely a... a social class question. The example of Britain again: a child born in the richest borough of the UK and the poorest borough. The life expectancy difference at this current point in time is eight years. That's a that's a lot of fry ups. That's a lot of fry ups. So. You know, these are choices that were made by a political class that had certain incentives, and my job is to fight back against that. Okay. To, to, to show people that this has happened, that this isn't a static thing, that you do have the power to change it, and here's the information to change it. Here's how and why it's happening. Taking the, the macro world out of it, what's a, what's a personal achievement um, as a result of doing the work that you do that you are particularly proud of? Uh, again, it's so it's very specific, but um, one of the things that I've personally achieved is we have we had a very loose coalition of 130 organizations around the world working on tax and gender, and we would have this monthly call. Tax and, and gender. Tax and gender, and we would have this monthly call where we kind of discuss, oh, we're doing this, we're going to be at this international event. We're going to be pushing this policy advocacy thing. And it was very loose and very uh, nebulous. And so one thing that I have contributed personally is getting us together, putting us all together in a room to say, right, how should we work? So we now have a steering committee. We have a five-year advocacy plan. We have a list of advocacy spaces that we engage in annually where we have specific policy platforms that we are going to push. And they're working wisely on those policy platforms? Working wisely on those platforms. Okay. And like, how do you feel when you do that? So I want to keep walking away from the macro now and go a little more micro. What do you, what do you feel when you get data that something that you are working on is perhaps creating a better, uh, more gender equal tax, uh, environment for women, um, in a particular part of the world? I mean, I find my work deeply fulfilling, but you know, that's, that's, uh, you know, really the cherry on top to say that my work personally is adding to a world or creating a world that is more just. But that's, I think, a, a very valuable thing to talk about. I mean, like, let's, let's, let's look at that for a second. It's, um, cause 
loads of people um, don't do what you do, you know? Um, I mean, many do, but I mean, I think it takes a certain kind of person with a certain kind of motivation to, to pursue this particular direction. I mean, especially as it relates to, um, you know, I mean, politics is a, is a slow slug out fight. It is not a, uh, you know, in the first quarter, we made this much in the fourth quarter, we, we sold it kind of, kind of world. Right. So, I mean, why, why, um, why not? Why would you choose to do something where um, you know that you could uh, be making more money doing something else? Not saying that that's what you should be doing, but I mean, to refute the narrative that we've discussed earlier, um, why, why, uh, what, what is your personal value um, in terms of the non-financial that makes you want to do what you do? There's two aspects to it. One is, I, as I hinted, I grew up well off. And there was a part of me that said, well, is my job in life to be wealthier than my father? Mm, probably not. So that's, you know, I, I do have the privilege of having a bit of a safety net behind me to, to be like, I can probably take on uh, a not-so-wealthy job, though I am paid well now. Uh, to do this kind of work. Uh, the second is, I, I mean, it's my sense of purpose in the world. You know, I, like I said, it's really driven by this idea that I was lucky. And so my question arising from that is like, if I got so lucky, then what is my moral imperative in the world? My moral imperative in the world is to make sure that to be me, you don't have to be so lucky. And that really drives me every day. And yeah, that's not going to be something that gets achieved in a quarter or two years or five years. This is a lifetime work. It will be beyond my lifetime. But, you know, if you're someone like me who, who really grounds themselves in that higher level of moral purpose, that gets you out of bed and out the door every day. Yeah. I think, I think there's a lot of people, especially people who are, who are working in maybe a more conventional space where they, people talk about purpose a lot, right? I mean, People want both. People want goodies and people want purpose. I mean, not to trivialize what you say, because I think it has a lot of value, but part of what you're saying is I have enough goodies and recognize that. And therefore the purpose is more important. No, I would argue that my purpose is to also make sure that people in conventional jobs have the goodies. So that's the very good point. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's my point. I, I don't mean to say by any extent of the imagination that it's a vanity project or something like this. I totally mean to say that, um, there is there's a a safety net which allows you to go a little further maybe if, mm -hmm. if I may. So what would you say to somebody who is not horrendously suffering in a in a in a tax extracted uh tough part of the world but somebody who's maybe a little worried about their finances, they have an apartment, they have a job, they 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 don't hate it, they don't love it. And they generally feel a lack of purpose. I think that might describe a, a broad number of people in the developed world. They're, mm -hmm. they're, they're not, they don't hate their job. They're, they're not deeply in financial just ruin. Um, but they're a little financially insecure given all the things and expectations mm -hmm. on them. What would you suggest to a person like that if they just, if they want to do a few small things to make the world a more fair and just, uh, place? I would say find your fight. Find the thing that, like, you know, you're reading. I mean, we're all doing it. But that you're all reading every day and you're like, this actually makes me kind of really mad. 
just just find that thing and figure out how to get involved with it. Find the thing that makes you mad. Find the thing that makes you mad. I mean, for me, the thing that made me mad, that like confused me, that created this maelstrom of emotion was me not being able to reconcile, you know, the the life that my family could have had had they stayed in Bangladesh and the life that I did end up having. And the fact that it was so vast and unfair, that's the thing that made me mad. So find the thing that you're reading or you're looking at and you're like, this is awful. It could be anything from, you know, you stumble upon that article about how animals are treated in animal crimes. You're like, well, this makes me mad. Let me get involved in that. It could be anything from a micro action to like donating a euro a month to signing a petition to volunteering. I mean, find the thing. Okay. Is, is, is my is my thing. And I mean, it goes back to my earlier point. When we work to exhaustion, we don't leave enough energy and space to get involved in these fights in in doing that thing. And the world is poorer for it. Okay. No, it's very good. I think it's also a decent sorting mechanism in the sense that there are so many uh, outraging headlines. I mean, I want to I want to pose something to you. I don't think you're just saying find outrageous clickbait, get angry and, 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 and react. I think what you're saying is look at the crazy uh, Ferris wheel of, of news that inundates us with bad news and really think about the, the general area where you are most disturbed. I don't think you're saying like follow your outrage. I think maybe you are and I'm wrong. But yeah, I mean, don't follow just like blind rage, but find out, you know, find the thing that you, you know, you read it, and then you're actually thinking about later. Well, this is what I think is is is, is yeah. the most authentic thing about your motivation, as you've described it so far. Is you're saying, "Hey, I, I there's a part of me that feels very, very fortunate for the life I have, but there is a part of me that is also uniquely disturbed that other people from Bangladesh, for example, do not get to participate in things that I think are a basic thing that every human being should have, and and that." That conflict is something that that motivates you to to fix that disparity in your work. Yes. Now that's a beautiful thing. That's great. I think it's also something that, when when phrased that way, can also get somebody else to to uh, recognize a similar conflict, right? Because I think one thing that maybe is difficult about the modern sort of work life balance argument is. There's an argument that like all this yoga, all this chilling out is really just going to like free up your mind to then work more, right? Or, 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 uh, make you tolerate a situation that's not very good. And, you know, maybe the second part of that is, is when you have that extra mental energy, uh, maybe, maybe it's worth, uh, putting it towards, um, some, some things that are, although you've aligned them with your career quite well, are, are civic concerns. And, and frankly, should be shared by, by everyone. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll, you know, I fundamentally believe we're all in this together. And so what does that actually mean? Being in this together is devoting some of that time and space to these civic concerns. I mean, it's the fundamental principle of, principle of democracy, right? Having a civicus. So I, I really encourage people, because I, I understand that when people hear about what I do and why I do it, they're like, oh my God, I don't have that kind of moral North Star or like I don't have the kind of moral conviction you have to do that thing. And it doesn't have to be that way. What I'm saying is find your fight, do the thing that you can do while doing your work because your work isn't the only thing that will define you. Yeah. And, and I think that's really also one of those myths that narratives that we kind of swallow wholesale in this, in this era that like, 
your work is who you are. No, you're made up of many other things, and maybe one of the other things is maybe a champion for animal rights, a champion for clean water, uh, a champion for safe biking. Like, these are all other important civic concerns. Yeah, work is important, but it's one thing yeah. in, a, in a colorful life. Well, I think I think we'll we'll wrap it there, Faria. But thank you so much for uh, sharing uh, parts of your colorful life with us. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Take care. And that concludes my interview with Faria. For those who are interested in the activities of Tax Justice Network, you can check out their website, or as said before, check out the Spider's Web, Britain's Second Empire, on YouTube. That's all for now. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Working Wisely. Get stuff done. Go home. Enjoy your life, and I'll see you next time.